Welcome to the Unpopulist Editor's Roundtable at Zooming In. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. It's our birthday. The Unpopulist is now in its terrible twos, and so today I'm joined by my colleague Sheikha Dalmia and Akiva Malamut to give a progress report on what we've accomplished in these last two years and where we see the current state of liberalism. Sheikha, why don't you take us away? Thank you, Erin. Uh, and um, thanks uh, to Akiva and both of you for being here. It's an important milestone uh, in the unpopulist's life. Um, yeah, as you uh, mentioned, uh, this is our, you know, we are beginning our terrible truth twos, but I'm hoping that instead of uh, throwing tantrums, we are going to make the right kind of trouble in the immortal words of uh, John Lewis. But um, to give, uh, you know, our um, audience a bit of a progress report, two years ago, the Unpopulist was founded with a singular mission, and that was to sort of defend liberal democracy from the rise of the illiberal populist right. And it was going to do so by using classical liberal thought. Uh, classical liberalism, in my view, and I think I can speak for the two of you, offers the richest intellectual resources to find tyranny and authoritarianism in all its form, forms. And I felt like it was uh, being completely underutilized, if not misused in many, many ways. And so the idea was to both defend uh, liberal democracy and also kind of rearticulate classical liberalism itself to make it relevant for this new threat that we were confronting. It was also my very firm belief that just like uh, socialism in some ways was the defining threat of our times after World War II, this liberal populism of the right was going to be the threat of you know, our generation or, well, I'm very old, but future generations. And um, and why is that? The reason is that, in my view, you know, populism in some ways or illiberal populism poses even a more fundamental threat to liberal democracy than socialism. Uh, and the reason is it kind of ch uh, changes the relationship between the uh, the government and the governed. Uh, in a liberal democra uh, democratic framework, it's sort of centered around the power of keeping political authority in check. And one crucial part of the check are the people. I mean, you know, vote the bums, throw the bums out when they get too tyrannical. The premise over there is that people are going to guard their freedom. They are going to be a bulwark against authoritarianism and an authoritarian. But that changes in a populist framework where uh, the people actually join forces with the, you know, with the strongman populist figure. And instead of guarding freedom, they their motive becomes uh, to use the levers of power to attack their enemies, their political enemies. And so in a fundamental sense, the whole relationship uh, in a, a populist polity between all the various checks and balances and institutions of liberal democracy kind of like fundamentally changes. And to me, there's therefore no greater threat to uh, liberal democracy than populism. And so with that, uh, you know, understanding the unpopulist, as the name suggests, <laughs> was uh, incubated at the Mercator Center two years ago, and it was on a two-year grant. And after that, 
um, it needed a new home. And so I'm happy to report that, uh, you know, even as our audience has grown, we started with 650 subscribers. We are nine times bigger now and growing uh, rapidly every day. Uh, you guys have been an invaluable part of it. Erin, you almost uh, from the inception and uh, Akiva, you a little bit later. And um, and so we were just as we grew, we felt like we needed a new home and we've created one and it's called the Institute for the Study of Modern Authoritarianism, ISMA. It is no physical building. There's nothing bricks and mortar, but it's a platform which will give us an operational base to expand ourselves and our activities as we go uh, as we go forward. This, in my view, is going to be um, uh, the unpopulist. Let me mention is just going to be one element of this new center. We are going to do other things. Uh, we have a new editorial partner with Persuasion which is an awesome uh, sister Substack publication uh, founded by Yasha Monk, um, who is a Johns Hopkins professor. And um, he comes from the progressive side of the spectrum, and he's worried about some of the progressive excesses uh, and threats to liberal democracy. So just as we, or at least I see myself as an internal reformer on the right, he sees himself as an internal reformer uh, on uh, the progressive end of things. Um, so we have an editorial partnership with Persuasion, and we'll be promoting content and each other's work. Uh, another element um, of the uh, ISMA, the Institute for the Study of Modern Authoritarianism, is going to be a polling project that Tom Schull, who's our editor at large, is launching to study the appeal of strongman politics in the United States. That's something that isn't very well understood or tracked, and we feel we should be able to pick up trends when uh, you know people are getting uh, more attracted uh, attracted to strongman figure. And another element is going to be a liberalism conference. So uh, if uh, our, our uh, readers will be familiar with the national conservative movement and other illiberal movements on the right, and uh, they host their own conference every year. And we think we need a conference uh, to make a, a strong and strenuous and vigorous case for liberalism. So there are going to be other programmatic elements housed within this new center, but that's the core. And I, you know, and in the last two years since the Unpopulist was founded, I don't think our work has diminished. I think it's actually increased because the state of the world has become, in my view, decidedly worse. Um, here in America, um, you know, the Republican Party seems to reach new lows every few weeks. Um, you know, January 6th was not a shocking enough event for the party and it didn't awaken it. You know, after that event, uh, Trump is the favorite to win the nomination of the party. There are 91 indictments against him. And instead of being embarrassed, uh, the Republican Party seems to think it's no problem at all. The problem is actually with the system that's trying to hold a rogue president accountable. Um, you know, it's been the law and order party all this long, except for, you know, when it applies to its own favorite uh, politicians. Um, at the same time, uh, 
And even if Trump were in jail, that would not necessarily be a barrier to his uh, election. But if he were to somehow not be the nominee, the two people who are waiting in the wings are uh, Florida Governor DeSantis and uh, neophyte Vivek Ramaswamy. And both of them represent two different styles of populism within the GOP. DeSantis has this nasty sort of cold calculator status side where he wants to use, uh, you know, the government to, uh, uh, you know, rein terror on his uh, uh, woke political opponents. And Vivek Ramaswamy has a different, what I call, paleo-libertarian style of uh, populism where he wants to selectively um, uh, withdraw agencies and curtail the federal government so that that hurts his political opponents. Now, many of us are not opposed to reducing the side of the federal government, but the selective way in which he wants to do it to promote right-wing causes and diminish left-wing causes is very concerning. Add to that his kookiness and his conspiracy theory uh, uh, mindset uh, and his border hawkishness. And he is, in my view, and reincarnation of Ron Paul in many ways, who the difference is that Ron Paul was an outlier when he ran in the Republican Party, whereas Vivek Ramaswamy, in fact, speaks for the party. And uh, meanwhile, if you look at look around the world in India, my home, my native country, uh, Modi, Narendra Modi, he's a Hindu nationalist and a strong man and a populist figure, is a hands down favorite to win elections again for the third time next year. Um, And then if you go around the rest of the world, uh, things are not looking a whole lot better. Um, Turkey, Erdogan uh, won again, uh, even though the opposition put up a pretty valiant uh, fight. He still prevailed. And everybody, I think, now thinks Turkey is on sort of an irreversible path to certain kind of religious liberalism. Uh, Gone are its uh, secular commitments. And uh, and then if you go down the list, whether it is Italy, it is Hungary, Poland, G- in Germany, the um, the alternative to democracy, uh, alternative to Germany, which is a far right outfit, is the second largest party. It may well be within the governing coalition uh, in the next elections. In France, after uh, Mac- uh, after Macron won, he's now in trouble, and uh, the National Rally and Eric Zemmour, two very far right figures, are gaining ground. In Italy, you have uh, Giorgio Maloney, and uh, to me, the most ominous sign that things are on a very bad track is that the European Union itself seems to be succumbing to. Uh, far-right priorities and policies and agenda and its position on immigration. I mean, we care about immigration, but it's also sort of a bellwether issue, I think, for the populist right. And the European Commission, which used to be very opposed to uh, stiff border controls around Europe has now succumbed. Its uh, you know border control budget, to just throw out one figure at you, has increased from 85 million to 754 million in less than a decade. And uh, it is now talking about, whereas earlier it used to talk about, you know, that we don't need to control Europe's border. Now they are talking about collective border security and are doubling down on it. 
so, you know, given all these trends, I think uh, the unpopulist and uh, ISMA have their work cut out for them. And uh, so we are going to be doing this over the next few years and um, hopefully getting more support from uh, our audience and our viewers and uh, everyone else. So I really appreciate what you said there, Shekha, and I think uh, particularly the international focus that the unpopulist takes is a unique uh, emphasis um, in combining um, focus not just on America and on the West, but on the world in general. One country that wasn't discussed as much in your catalog of horrors um, is Israel. And I think of Israel as quite an important country because it serves as a kind of cultural social bridge between the West and the East. It has this element, it has elements of both Eastern and Western culture within it, um, and geographically as being on the Mediterranean, it serves that function as well. The shift in Israel towards what are very worrying judicial reforms in which the far right in Israel is essentially attempting to hobble the power of the Supreme Court and the, the Supreme Court's ability to protect its citizens from majoritarian rule and from authoritarian uh, attempts to remove women's rights, remove LGBT rights, um, to install a, on the part, a wish, I think, of a less likely but still consistent wish for part of Netanyahu's coalition is to install a theocracy in Israel, um, although I see that as a little bit less likely. And all of those pieces are coming together to make Israel, which was historically considered a great American ally and the, the, the great sign of democracy in the Middle East, Israeli democracy um, is no longer looking quite as good um, and in fact may be crumbling in some very, very um, critical, critical places. The installation of the first line of these judicial reforms, which was getting rid of the uh, reasonableness clause, is now undergoing hearings by the Supreme Court. We will see whether the Supreme Court allows for and passes something to amend its own power, um, and whether they will consider that um, legally valid or not. Um, I think the reasonableness clause is a fairly minor clause because it's an administrative um declaration that says that you can't pass certain laws that don't take care take account of certain reasonable um, variables. So for example, the reasonableness clause was used to get rid of ministers from people from being ministers who had been indicted for corruption. So Aryeh Derry, the minister from the Shas party, which is the Sephardic ultra-Orthodox party in Israel, was removed from his post um, in being minister because he had served time in jail. And so it's those kinds of considerations that the reasonableness clause um, is meant to curtail to prevent corruption in government. And so while it's a relatively minor cause, there are other ways to prevent corruption in government. There are other powers that the Supreme Court has of judicial review. It's exemplar. It, it represents uh, a significant uh, move towards uh, curtailing the power of the Supreme Court, both to uphold um, good standards and best practices in government and prevent corruption, but also uh, to be able to balance the power of the Knesset, the parliament, against the protection of individual rights. It's important to remind people that Israel, which has no formal written constitution, is dependent on the Supreme Court to protect the, the liberties of citizens, which it does through its interpretation of the basic laws, 
which declare certain fundamental rights but are not themselves equivalent to a constitution. And absent these judicial review powers, there really is no private, there really is no block or check and balance to the power of the Knesset to enact all kinds of majoritarian tyrannies that severely violate the rights of Israel, Israeli citizens, as well as Palestinians. And so the judicial reforms, as I see them, are a significant blow to one of the more important democracies in the world today. Thank you for um, correcting my omission over here. Israel is obviously a super important uh, country uh, for uh, both geopolitical reasons and uh, as well as, as you mentioned, an important, you know, liberal democracy, at least. Some of us think it's uh, liberal enough that we should be worried about its uh, more draconian turn. But, you know, one of the things I uh, should want to emphasize is that, you know, this is sometimes when we talk about liberal democracy, it sounds kind of like arid. It sounds like, you know, sort of very abstract. And But it has actually like real consequences on real people. And it's not simply about, in Israel, for instance, it's not simply about things like judicial review and curbing the power of the executive, all very, you know, sort of clinical terms. It has impact on the, you know, on human rights, right? I mean, uh, the Palestinian fate, to some extent, depends upon what happens in Israel. The Muslim fate in India depends upon whether the Hindu nationalist government, uh, you know, is able to run rough, roughshod over over them. And so, when we talk about liberal democracy, it's not simply about maintaining a system. It is about maintaining a system that protects you know, life and liberty of actual breathing, living human beings. And that's kind of why, uh, you know, to me, it's uh, sort of, it's such an important cause. I, you know, if liberal democracy fails, it's not just going to be, it's not just going to fail and be replaced by something else that's less good. There will be many lives destroyed, decimated, and, uh, you know, a major upheaval if if we don't get things back in order. Yes, that's absolutely critical. So I'll just quickly say it has been it's been a real privilege and honor to get to be a part of this project uh, for for the last couple of years um and I think I agree with everything that's been said that it the mission of the impopulist mattered a lot when it launched. It matters at least as much now, in part because I think that a lot of the threats to liberalism have become in many ways more subtle and and easier to ignore, easier to dismiss. Like the I I think probably in my mind, and maybe I'm being naive about this, but I think that the the immediate threat of Donald Trump himself has lessened a lot compared to where it was. Two years ago, I think the the path to re-election for him is exceedingly narrow, um, if not effectively gone, barring extraordinary circumstances. I just don't see a way that he wins back the suburban white voters who flipped to Biden um, after everything that's been happening and the indictments and all of that. I just and and I think that the a lot of what we've seen is electorally, a lot of the really hardcore of Trumpism doesn't seem to do very well at the national level. DeSantis, even if he won the nomination, I don't think would would win the presidency because he's just not terribly popular. 
Um, he can't even beat out the the kind of rando farmer bro who's running against him in the primaries. Um, so at the national level, that kind of real Trumpism was, I mean, was never popular. It never got majorities. It seems to be less so now, especially as it becomes more shrill. But that the threats, as I said, have become more subtle. And so one of the things that really worries me is threats to liberalism from within the liberal coalition. And, and a lot of that is the way that the pivot to the culture war being the dominant force in American politics, that we don't, we don't really argue so much over policy at, anymore, or policy is not centered in our political debates to the extent that it used to be. It is now culture war issues dominate the conversation. And the the real extreme versions of the right's views on the culture war are are not, again, terribly popular. They don't have widespread purchase, and that's shifting as as demographics and particularly age demographics change and so on, like which generations are ascendant and which are shrinking. But one of the things that really worries me is the way that Edge concerns in the culture war are getting used as justification for kind of broader reactionary attitudes that were present in in the larger liberal coalition, but now but were kind of kept on the down low. And so we're seeing this in reactions to LGBT rights or trans rights, where people will point to smaller issues, women's sports, or some kids getting certain kind of medical interventions and and use that as a way to broaden out a critique of essentially the dynamism of culture and and privileged groups underprivileged groups becoming more privileged formerly heavily privileged groups maybe dropping in their privilege cancel culture concerns are also this way we see a lot of there are genuine instances of like cancel culture run amok but Often what you see is concerns about that providing cover for general concerns of like people with higher status not really liking it, that kind of the lower status people are now challenging them, pushing back on their ideas, that they're not as they're not as centered in the conversation as they used to be. And what I think a lot of this has exposed is that even in the broader liberal coalition, there was there's always been a tension between conservative values and and the social dynamism that is a necessary part of of a liberal society or a necessary consequence of a liberal society and so i think that's where we really need to maintain a check on taking concerns seriously but not allowing them to provide cover for for basically i'm in favor of liberalism as long as it doesn't like destabilize my own position my own status, my own prestige, my own preferences, because as you said, like these things, we can talk about them in this clinical sense of the the function of various institutions and the laws that govern them or the laws by which they govern themselves. But ultimately, this is about people. It's about their lives and and the reason that liberalism matters. Uh, the reason that I think all three of us have dedicated our careers to defending and advancing it is because it is the best system 
that we have found yet for enabling diverse, dynamic people to not just live together in peace, but live together in mutually beneficial ways. And and but that cuts against these natural tendencies for hierarchy and class and categorizing people and then seeing their their dignity as of differing values depending on where they fall into these categorizations and and that's that's been the challenge liberalism has faced since it started is liking it in the abstract but then disliking it when the kind of the effects of freedom become real to us uh, and so that's where i think the the tremendous value of the unpopulist is in in making those values clear and defending them and calling out where they're in retreat especially as it moves into the less cartoony flamboyant threats of a donald trump and into what i see as these these more subtle avenues for backsliding into particularly kind of social liberalisms and then the inevitable political liberalisms that that follow you know yeah erin i uh, couldn't agree with you more and yet i mean in 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 a, in a very fundamental sense about the value of liberalism and what we are fighting for here i couldn't agree with you more but i would say that precisely because of you know some of what you said i'm less sanguine about um uh, you know the threat that donald trump and the republican party pose even now you know part of what we are seeing right now with the rise of the you know the uh, illiberal populist right in the united states especially is that you know the gain the gains of the civil rights and the women's movement you know were are only beginning to be felt now in the sense that these groups have now moved into positions of power and they you know don't believe that the previous norms of you know patriarchy and a certain kind of you know uh, you know white articulation of the world work for them every you know anymore and they are demanding change now as they demand change you know these things never happen neatly there are going to be excesses which is why you know i appreciate what yasha monk is doing and persuasion are doing there'll be excesses but there is all, but the backlash from the right is far bigger in my view than the excesses on the left and that backlash is not going to be contained anytime soon i mean if you you know uh what's spooky to me is that you know the republican party has not like i said woken up of you know from its uh, trumpist stupor yet that fever is still continuing to uh you know if not grow but re- retain its hold on the republican brain but look at the new populist figures that have emerged um in the gop vivek ramaswamy he's you know not he's a double ivy leaguer and yet he you know issues purple condemnations of the elite and you know what have you but he himself is the son of immigrants he's a practicing hindu and he's a son of immigrants and yet you know there is a certain political entrepreneurship that this trumpets uh, style of uh, populist politics has opened which is going to continue to play out in the republican party and when you have a duopoly you know when you have a country with only two parties when one party is in such a bad place 
it can continue to pull down, you know, uh, liberalism in many ways. And, you know, I would have to say that, you know, Democrats, you know, they get the, they, you know, the rap against them is that they are too much in the pockets of progressives, right? And they're, they're allowing the, the extreme progressives to uh, set the agenda for, uh, for the party. My opposite fear is, as yours, is that in response to this backlash from Republicans, Democrats will actually, you know, succumb on their sort of, um, you know, they commit some of their uh, commitments to, um, you know, defending minority groups and what have you. I don't think that has happened yet. And I think they are not doing it smartly. I think they do need to listen to, you know, concerns about the other side. Uh, and at least remove some of the, uh, you know, the obvious causes, you know, or the, the, you know, the on those grounds where the backlash is justified, they ought to keep that in mind, but they have to do it in a way that doesn't weaken their, you know, their commitments to the little guy, to the underdog. And I think that's kind of, uh, if Republicans continue to make political gains the way they are doing, I think Democrats may well follow suit just to keep themselves politically relevant. So I really appreciated, Chika, what you said about this being, some to some extent, the coming to fruition of certain liberation movements. And so we're seeing a backlash as a result of this dismantling of patriarchy, the dismantling of prejudice against LGBTQ people, and so on. Um, and I think this speaks to a fundamental um, impetus in liberalism, which is that nobody's free until everybody's free. And the move within liberalism to be continually looking for who are the edge groups, who are the groups that are not yet in our circle of equality, who are not yet in our circle of liberty, continues to create um, backlash and continues to create um, pushes forward. I always think it's interesting that you have mo- periods of liberalization followed by a backlash. So you have, I think it's interesting that you have the Me Too movement and then you have Trump, right? All in a in a fairly not in a in a chronologically related section. Similarly, you have a lot of the accomplishments, you know, in the original classical age of fascism, you had all these feminist accomplishments of the 1920s that were then followed by the age of fascism. Um, and you had, you know, a thriving gay scene in Berlin that was then followed by, by fascism in the 1920s. And so it's, in a way, this illiberal populism is uh, predictable because there's always a, a response to the status of some groups being disrupted in society because other groups are demanding their place at the table, but it's also give. But the fact that 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 backlash is almost inevitable shouldn't give us cause for despair. Rather, it should give us reason to be aware of what will happen culturally and to find the resources to push back against it. And that's where we can get back to, I think, the clinical institutional side of things because if liberalism is i think liberalism at its core is a set of social values about how we view each other and our interactions with them and what it means to live together in uh, in beneficial peace but if there's this baked in cycle of you know some people are more committed to that vision than others and some people are committed to it so long as it doesn't mean things get too weird 
for them and then they have the backlash or their status lowers and then they have the backlash. That's where protecting these institutions, which has also been a big part of the unpopulists mission because those liberal institutions exist to to essentially defang that those inevitable backlashes that people can get they can get frustrated about changes in the world around them they cannot like it that their town looks different today than it did when they were kids or that popular music sounds funny or there's these people who speak foreign languages or the children are up to weird playing with their identities that makes me a little uncomfortable like that we can't we can't undo that but what we can do is ensure that our political institutions can't be co-opted by the people caught up in the backlash in order to advance actual political oppression in order to stop it that instead they can kind of rage against it or they can use their associational rights to find parts of the country that were better reflect their values or whatever but what what we saw with trump and the ongoing threat is that that backlash can if liberal institutions aren't strong can grab the mechanisms of power can grab the very heights of power and then fortunately trump turned out to be wildly inept in doing it but can attempt to reoppress the people who liberalism is freeing remarginalize the people that it has unmarginalized and and that's where i see if we can't that the link between the social values and the institutions and and the need to keep an eye on both yeah just to add to that uh erin um you know the, what spooks me about this backlash is precisely its attack on liberalism right it's like it's you know uh the the populist right understands that uh, the impediment to its designs to roll back the clock is precisely liberalism because groups that have now been empowered can fight back you know they can use those same institutions and those same rights to fight back fight back and maintain their gains so the reversal of those gains requires precisely attacking liberalism it is not a coincidence that trump called the press the enemy of the people and uh you know attacked the background of a mexican judge who felt you know he felt would rule in his favor for his fake university or you know whatever it is uh, that he was doing with that and uh so that's you know that's why the backlash is so dangerous is i mean if you if you a lot of my conservative friends who are not even sort of on part of the trumpist right they've catastrophized uh, they have catastrophized the left so much this argument that the left controls all the commanding heights of the culture and american society and so you know to take back those heights we can't play by the normal rules you know we've got to play by some other illiberal rules is very much you know part of the right the only thing i would exhort the left to do is that as it pushes back against the right is that you know the part of the problem with the left is that in order to make more gains for people you know for marginalized groups as you mentioned erin was that they were claiming too many innocent victims right or too many people you know who could be better reached by some kind of persuasive rather than 
you know, coercive or punitive strategies. And they overplayed their hand in that respect. But I actually think, you know, and uh, I've alluded to kind of like this piece in uh, Vox uh, before Trump came on the scene where this liberal professor wrote a piece anonymously about how his liberal students terrify him because, you know, anything he says in class, no matter how innocuous can and will be used against him, if it doesn't somehow advance their, you know, agenda or it ruffles some feathers. But there was already a correct, you know, corrective current in our politics against that. And we could have come to a pretty good place where we advanced, you know, more rights to more people while preventing, you know, innocent victims of that, you know, of that particular cause. But the the right came along the scene and it doesn't want to have anything to do with these corrective mechanisms. It doesn't want to, you know, have anything to do with using liberalism. It's in it for the power. And my fear is that when one side becomes so wholly devoted to uh, using the levers of power to advance its agenda, it's not, you know, inconceivable that the other side will also do the same at some point. So even as we worry about, you know, so there are two, I think for the, uh, you know, the center left side of the spectrum, there are two dangers it has to worry again, worry about. One, it has to worry about, you know, imbibing too many of these sort of regressive right wing policies and agenda and, uh, uh, you know, giving up on some of its progressive causes. On the other hand, it, uh, you know, it may also succumb to the twin temptation of just simply seeking power to advance its agenda and forgetting about liberalism. So all of that is kind of part of the mix in our, you know, very fluid, tumultuous political world. And, uh, you know, now the unpopulist firmly believes that at this moment in time, the right is the far bigger threat than the left. The left is a mixed bag. It has some good causes, but its means are occasionally questionable. But liberalism could have handled that. But, uh, you know, we will also occasionally keep an eye on that kind of stuff. I really appreciated what you said there, Shika, especially about the value of protecting liberalism and as an institutional framework. Um, I think one of the speaking to the mistakes made by the left as it tries to oppose the right, one of the things um, that gets underappreciated is the role is the mistake of conflating democracy and liberalism with each other. Um, and often there's this idea on the left that if we failed to protect our values, it's because the people weren't really speaking. Uh, weren't were misled and needed to be guided by us instead of by some other force. And what we really need to do is have as uh, is neither is not have democratic fundamentalism, and we also don't want to have um, a kind of protection of rights with or without any response or check check and balance with uh, respect to to democratic accountability. Um, but it's important to recognize that rights need to be protected independently of whether or not they're democratically sanctioned. Um, and this is also a really important time for the left to double down on some of the things that maybe it had historic, it, that maybe it's, it's become a little softer on, um, in comparison to how it's been historically, such as free speech. Um, because when you decide that an institution can be manipulated for your own end, so for the example, the expansion of, let's say, 
different things to the category of hate speech or incitement. Those same instruments can be used by the right to manipulate and then uh, go after Disney for, let's say, Disney's woke behavior becoming a problem for the discourse just as much as um, whatever the, the left may perceive to be a problem in terms of hate speech. And so there's an important need to um, not let whatever the people want become the uh, the 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 equivalent of a liberal society, and there's also a need to defend liberal institutions because uh, more often than not, someone that you don't like is going to then then be in charge of them if you start to abandon those principles. I'm actually curious as to what Aaron you think about what Akiva just said. So you know you feel passionately about trans rights, right? And uh, so the question is, what are the legitimate means to advance those rights? Uh, is, you know, what are the limits? Is using the power of the state uh, uh, to advance them acceptable? Um, are there, you know, are there means that trans activists have used to advance their rights that we would, you know, that would give us pause from a liberal framework? Um, you know, what are the limits? for uh, advancing any act, you know, any crusade for anybody's rights. There are always limits. We could certainly draw them at don't advance your rights in a way that violates the rights of others who aren't themselves violating yours. So what I mean by that is say like in the abolitionist movement the abolition movement's anti-slavery was clearly about advancing a set of rights that were being heavily violated in you know like absolutely violated and that entailed often doing violence to slaveholders taking away what they wrongfully imagined to be their property and so on i don't see that as the kind of like don't violate others rights when advancing your own limits clearly but you can you can certainly in in trying to move yourself from the margins more towards the center of society in trying to undo oppression it is possible to do that in ways that are rights violating to others you know appropriating their rightly held property which is a fairly common thing of we're going to just we've gotten our power back now we're going to seize everything from everyone who's we see is wronging us but I don't see that really playing that playing out much in the current situation. I mean, one of the one of the interesting things about say the trans rights concerns right now is this isn't actually an example of a group of people suddenly using the power of the state to rapidly advance their interests. Rather, most of the rights that we talk about now that trans people are are worried about losing are things that they've had for quite a long time, that the state has protected for quite a long time. And, and what's happening now is a rolling back, an attempt to roll back existing rights. They're not claiming a whole bunch of new ones. Rather, these were things that they had been doing forever, and suddenly it became, especially with the shift to the culture war, the the victory of gay marriage, and so the need for and and particularly like it accelerated after the abortion, after um, 
changes in abortion and that becoming not the kind of driving thing that was motivating the right. The culture warriors on the right looked for a new thing to rile up. You know, and we have Chris Rufo explicitly saying he's doing this. Um, and then targeting this group that no one had really been concerned about. Like they hadn't there hadn't been worries about any of this stuff until people decided it was a big problem. And now you see scaling back of it. So I don't see a lot of this as overexertion in terms of claiming new rights and privileges, but rather please stop taking away the ones that we have had and then being very vocal in in demanding that they not be taken away. But I think to to Akiva's broader point, yes, there is a need to distinguish democracy and liberalism. They are obviously very interrelated. Democracy is the best system that we have found for achieving and maintaining liberalism compared to institutional alternatives that we've seen in practice. Democracy also is a system that really puts at its core the the equal dignity and participation of all citizens, except in those times when democracy tries to deny some citizens democratic participation. Uh, but it is absolutely the case that majorities can be illiberal and majorities can disrespect rights and majorities can want to see underprivileged people remain at the margins of society. And so we need to be careful to not see majority rule, democracy as majority rule, as synonymous with liberalism, but rather liberalism is a set of values that will inform what the majority sees as uh, its, its goals in the political sphere. Um, and, and so I think if we're going to, if we're going to look at, if we're going to look forward to, you know, how do we, how do we defend this thing we call liberalism, this thing that the impopulist has spent the first two years of its life defending and, and will spend the next many, many years continuing that, that fight, um, for me, a lot of it is is keeping an eye on the ball when it comes to those values and and keeping an eye on who is actually advancing them and who isn't and not allowing these subtle forms of a liberalism to gain purchase and respect and prominence within circles that ought to know better. But but instead to to call them out, even if it means, and this is we've we've all been through this, even if it means calling out our friends and our allies, um, people that we have associated with, because a liberalism is not concentrated among people who just wear hats that say I am a liberal. But it is it's been a constant presence throughout the history of liberal democracies. That's it's always pushing back. It's always coming from every direction. Lib liberalism has been fighting against liberalism as long as it's been around. And, and so paying attention to that and asking ourselves, if, if I'm caught up in, oh, here's an instance where liberalism's gone too far. Here's an instance where the behaviors become dangerous to it or corrosive of its values to really put effort into thinking about what's driving those motivations. 
And is it, is it just cover for kind of reactionary preferences or is there something genuine there? And and then stand our ground when it comes to when it comes to talking about those values and and fighting for them. Thank you for listening to Zooming In at the Unpopulist. If you enjoy this show, please take a moment to review us in Apple Podcasts and also check out Reimagining Liberty, our sister podcast, The Unpopulist, where I explore the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. Zooming In is produced by Landry Ayers and is a project of The Unpopulist. Thank you.